Kids are welcome to join the creels in the back for the children's sermon at this point. And the rest of you can join me in John chapter 11. We'll spend the next four weeks looking to the extended account of Jesus' raising Lazarus from the dead. This morning we'll look to verses 1 through 16 and lay a foundation for where we're going. So we prepare to turn to the Lord's word. Would you, would you bow with me? Father, as we, uh, as we open your word, would you, um, would, would you bless our understanding? Would you give us ears to hear and a heart to understand the deep, deep love of Jesus? In Christ's name we pray, amen. How are we to understand the love of Jesus when he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers? How are we to understand the love of Jesus when the direction he seems to be sending us in feels far too difficult? John 11 speaks to these questions. Hear now the inerrant and infallible word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. But Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. We've just heard sung. And we've just heard read an account of the deep, deep love of Jesus. But what does that mean? What is the deep, deep love of Jesus? And, and how would you define it? Sometimes those hard um, concepts are best defined through contrast. 
It's actually in 1 Kings 1, uh, a rather obscure, almost parenthetical verse that provides just such a contrast. Context for, the context for 1 Kings 1 is, is this. King David is he's on his deathbed. He's about to pass, and, and he's anointed Solomon, his son, to take over the throne. But Solomon was not David's only son. He had another. He had many others, but one in particular, Adonijah. 1 Kings 1, 5 and 6 provides a contrast to the deep, deep love of Jesus. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next to Absalom. Adonijah had his own plans because his father had not shown him the deep, deep love that we read of Jesus in this text. What picture of love did you see there in 1 Kings 1? Indulgent, non-challenging. But is that really loving? It actually sounds more neglectful. It sounds like a parent who says, I don't want to challenge you, my child, because that would be hard for you. And ultimately, for me, it's really just easier and more peaceful for me if I give you what you want. But is that true love? Is that deep love? No. True love. Deep love is a shaping Love, true love, deep love desires the greatest good for another, even if there is to be hard in the shaping. This passage in John 11, it points to the deeper love that Jesus has for his people. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. Please do not miss the way the Scripture speaks of this love. He speaks of it in verse 3. He affirms it again in verse 5. It's a picture of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus has a deep affection for these friends. You know what this looks like. Some friends are actually best friends. Maybe it's history, maybe it's chemistry, maybe it's a certain connection that we have with those best friends, but we all have those friends where there is a deeper affection, and Jesus is no different. There was an inner circle of three within the disciples. There were certain friends that he had an affection for, and he loved deeply, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so with all of that, how did Jesus manifest this love for these friends whom he had a deep affection for, well, we read it in verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved, so he lingered. We were writing a cause and effect logical progression. That sequence would not compute for us. 
When we think Jesus loved, what we put on the other end of that so is that so he dropped everything and ran to them so that he could make the pain stop. That's what we would expect to read when we read of Jesus' deep affection for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's actually the Jesus that we want. It's the content of our prayers. Jesus, I'm hurting. Come to me quickly and make this pain stop. That's not the deep love that we read here. In John 11, Jesus lingered. Do you have any concept of this type of deep love? Do you have any notion of of a love that, that is so deep, so rich, that it would allow or even cause hard things in order to bring a better good? That is not the love that we saw between David and Adonijah in 1 Kings 1. It's not the love that many of us actually want. And so why would Jesus love in this way? Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tells us that the Lord's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The Lord's ways are higher than our ways. And here we see that Jesus' love is deeper than our love. Jesus loved by lingering. He wasn't procrastinating. He wasn't being absent-minded and forgetful. He was intentional. He was intentionally at work in the life of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and in the lives of the disciples. And so what was he doing? What was the meaning behind this lingering? I were to paraphrase verses 7 and 8, where we go next. Essentially, after lingering for, for two days, Jesus gathers the disciples and said, hey, let's go, back to, let's go back to Bethany, to Judea. Do you remember where we left off in John 10? Remember what happened the last time that Jesus and the disciples were in Judea? They were picking up stones to kill him. And so the disciples said, are you crazy, Jesus? Do you remember the last time we were there? And now you want to go back? We get it, don't we? See, they couldn't see what Jesus was doing. They only saw through the lens of their earthly experience. It's true of the sisters. It's true of the disciples. Everybody in this whole scene is is judging what Jesus is doing by what they can see and experience. The disciples, there's there's a lesson for the sisters and for Lazarus. There's a deeper love for them, but there's also one here for the disciples. How are they responding? They love Jesus. They wanted to follow him, but they thought and they acted in terms of what they saw and experienced, and they resisted. Oh, their resistance wasn't a hardened resistance. They weren't trying to reject Jesus, but they just weren't thoughtfully, prayerfully considering where might the Lord be leading in this interaction. They didn't ask the deeper question, Lord, what are you doing in this? What are you doing 
in this situation? What are you doing in my life? Can you relate? Yes. Christians so often neglect the greatest gift that we have. Our relational union with Christ. And in doing so, we Christians often feel like we're all alone in this world. We live practically as materialists. Now, when I say materialist, I'm not referring to, um, to an unhealthy desire for wealth and comfort, though that can be a consequence of this form of materialism. When I speak of materialism, I'm speaking of a focus on the physical world without a consideration for the deeper spiritual reality. We live by what we can see and touch, feel. And in those moments, we're not living by faith. We're living by sight. How different would it have been if the disciples would have said, Jesus, this doesn't really make sense to us. We remember what happened the last time we were here. We remember how they were trying to kill you. So this doesn't make sense for us, but we trust in the deeper meaning and purpose behind this going back to Judea. So what are you trying to do in our lives through this mission? How different would that have been than this seeming rejection of Jesus? Are you crazy? How different would it be for you to ask that question of Jesus, Jesus, my senses are defining my circumstances in this particular way. My senses are defining my job struggles uh, in a certain way, telling me I am all alone in this world and I've got to do something to change these circumstances. Jesus, my senses are telling me that these relational difficulties are telling me that I'm all alone and I've got to change my behavior. I've got to go find some new friends. That my senses are telling me that my, are defining my circumstances in a certain way. So what are you doing, Jesus? What, what is the deeper meaning in these struggles that you have for me, how might that change your understanding? How might it change things for you to actually walk not by sight, but by faith? To ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing in this hard situation? Now, let me offer a thought here. When we ask that question, we don't always get the answer. To ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing, doesn't mean that he's always going to tell you that you're going to know. But it will draw you into a deeper experience of your blessed union in Christ. Seeking to be led by the Spirit to walk with Jesus through the struggle will draw you into the blessing of a relationship that we have with Jesus. We may not get the answers we're looking for, but we get something better. We get Jesus. The disciples missed the question. They didn't ask, Jesus, what are you doing? But because Jesus loves with a deep, deep love, he took them where they should have been going to begin with. He draws out for them the deeper meaning by speaking to a deeper motivation. Verses 9 
and 10, Jesus says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What was driving the disciples in verse 8 when they questioned Jesus? Fear. Fear was driving them. They had experienced something there in Judea, and they wanted no part of that again. Fear was driving their questioning, but Jesus had a different driving force. For Jesus, it wasn't fear. It was his calling. That's what he is saying here when he speaks of walking in the daytime. He's speaking of his calling. It's almost a word-for-word description of what he said in in chapter 9 when he went to heal the man born blind. He spoke of walking in the daytime because that's what God had called him to do. Jesus had a purpose, a purpose that had been given to him by the Father, and there was a window of time that he had been given to fulfill that purpose. Fear was not the motivating factor. Calling was. Dr. Henry Krabendam was a mentor of mine and, and Michael's. He's a man who taught for years at Covenant College. He's been going to Uganda since the 1980s when Idi Amin was in power. He's a man who's dealt with dangerous places. And uh, I've had the opportunity to go with him to Uganda on many occasions. And, and in Dr. Krabendam's time, teaching at covenant he would always in the spring take a group of students with him to uganda one of my trips with him there was a group of students and i was talking to dr k about these students and he said you know every year i get the same question from parents you know the question he got from parents dr krabbenam can you guarantee for me that my child will be safe with you in Uganda. Dr. Krabendam in his wisdom would answer this way. I can guarantee for you that your child will be just as safe in God's will in Uganda as they will be in Chattanooga. He's saying the Lord has a purpose. He's a purpose for each and every one of us. And fear would thwart that purpose. Fear would take us out of the will of God. Fear holds us back. But Jesus is saying, I am safe in the Father's will. I have been given an allotted amount of time fixed by an eternal decree. And the same is true for you and I. We have an allotted amount of time to follow and pursue the will of God. And the calling on our lives is meant to be the driving force behind our lives, not fear. You and I cannot extend that allotted amount of time, nor can it be shortened by the enemies of God. So Jesus is acknowledging that truth when he speaks of walking in the daytime. And he is saying it would be wrong for him to quit before the day is done. It would be to abandon the calling that the Lord had placed on his life. Brothers and sisters, fear thwarts the mission. Calling sustains it. That had a particular meaning for Jesus and the disciples in John 
chapter 11, but it has meaning for you and I as well. I'd be willing to bet that when you hear me speak of calling, you think in terms of vocational Christian ministry. <laughs> and that's true. I promise you, as I've wrestled with this text over the course of this week, I've considered my own calling and how the Lord is sustaining me in that calling. But how does calling sustain those outside of vocational Christian ministry? If we are a Christian, then we are called by God to walk in union with Christ. That means we are called by God to follow Jesus in a world that is antagonistic to him. Do you feel that tension, that pull to capitulate, to fear in a world that is antagonistic to Jesus versus the, the tension of abiding in your calling, your union in Christ? Young people, how do you feel? The tension of, of peer pressure to fit in to the world, to sacrifice your true values and beliefs merely so that you may fit in relationally with the people around you. Maybe it's the, the pull to engage in a certain outward behavior. Maybe it's the pull to simply passively join into a conversation that you know does not exalt God. Listen, locker room talk is not new. For anyone in this room, and for all of human history, there is conversation and behavior that is antagonistic to, to our great, holy, gracious, loving God. And the world would draw us in, calling, the calling that God places on our lives to walk with Christ sustains us in it. It's not just the young people. It's the not-so-young how do you feel this tension in the business world? How do you feel the tension to manipulate the numbers? Because others are doing it, and you'll be rewarded, and it's not so bad. And if you don't, what sustains us? What, what helps us to persevere in this calling? Well, fear went out. Well, Jesus calls us to persevere. And in order to help us persevere, he brings us to hard places to strengthen us in that calling. That's part of this deep love of Jesus. For Lazarus, that strengthening came in the form of bringing him through a season of physical suffering. Yes, even death. For Mary and Martha, what did the strengthening deep love of Jesus look like? It looked like taking them through a season of grief. For the disciples, the deep love of Jesus that, that he brought them uh, through hard times to strengthen them in faith took the form of them facing their fears. But in every case, for them and for us, the deep love of Jesus is meant to be a strengthening love because it has a very clear purpose. There's a, there's a progression in the verses that come after Jesus' description of his calling. In verse 11, he makes a statement. Lazarus has fallen asleep. There's a response of confusion on the part of the disciples. Okay, great. He's asleep. He'll wake up. And then clarity. In verses 13. And finally, in verse 14, 
Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. It's the purpose behind this whole gospel account. It's the purpose that we've heard about our entire time in John. Everything that Jesus has done, everything that Jesus has said, everything that Jesus has taught is so that you may believe. There's a purpose behind this whole discussion in John chapter 11. It is the purpose behind Jesus' lingering for two days. It is the purpose behind his mission to Judea. It will be the purpose behind his miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead so that we might believe. It is the purpose that we see in this gospel account in John, 30, John 20, verse 31, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in belief, we might find life in his name. Friends, Jesus' desire is for us to believe. And that is the highest expression of his love for us. That he would take us through hard things. Scary times. So that we might believe it is our highest Good, And as he says here in verse 4, it, this belief connects to the glory of God. Verse, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Our belief brings glory to God because our belief marks the entrance into the Christian life. But don't miss this. Belief in the Christ who saves is belief in the Christ who sustains. We talked about calling, the calling of God as a sustaining motivation in the Christian life, but there is a more fundamental question that we need to answer. What will sustain us in our calling? Calling sustains us in the Christian life, but what will sustain us in our calling? In the context of this passage a different way to ask the question is this what does it take for you and I what will it take for you and I to walk boldly in union with Jesus when we can't see what he's doing in our lives on one hand to persevere in this calling we need the knowledge of truth we need the knowledge of truth. And in this text, the truth that we have is that our suffering is connected to glory. It was true for Jesus. Jesus' suffering is connected to his glory. And your suffering, my suffering, is connected to the glory that we will one day, someday experience with Jesus. On one hand, to persevere in our calling, we need a knowledge of truth. But on the other hand, in addition to truth, to knowing truth, we need to know Jesus. I've never served in the military. I've never seen combat. And so uh, anything I am about to say is purely conjecture. I'll offer that. But this past week I was driving up uh, I-59 from Birmingham back to Trustful, and I looked over on the on the side of the interstate, there's a billboard there with a chiseled Marine with a question that says, why does a Marine fight? Now, I can't 
fully answer that question, but I might dare to make a guess that if you asked that Marine that question, why do you fight, you might get a different answer if you asked it stateside versus if you asked it in battle. I bet that if you asked that Marine why he fights stateside, you might get an answer related to his knowledge of truth. That Marine might say he fights for our freedom. He might say that he fights for the Constitution of the United States. It's an answer based on the knowledge of truth. But if you ask that Marine the same question in the thick of battle, his answer would probably be different. Instead of an answer based on the knowledge of truth, it would be an answer based on knowing the man beside him. Why does the Marine fight in battle? He fights for his buddy. He fights for the one he knows. He fights for the one who knows him. Which is it for us? What sustains us? What we know or who we know? What will sustain us in the battle? Knowing truth or knowing Jesus? And are they different? I don't know what to do with verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Our confession of sin was Thomas's doubt that we see in John 20, here in John 11. I don't know if Thomas is being... Uh, boastful stateside or if he's being fatalistic i don't know if he's showing courage outside of the battle or if he's just fatalistic saying let's just go stateside though he's willing to go on the mission but how does he see jesus does he see jesus as a drill sergeant or a beloved friend now, how do you see Jesus? When you hear me speak of Jesus loving and so he lingered. When you hear that shocking statement that Jesus loved so deeply that he didn't go. That Jesus loved so deeply that he brings about hard things. Do you see Jesus as drill sergeant or beloved friend? Do you hear and see him as strict disciplinarian who is trying to get us in line and correct our wrong thinking? What does the whole passage tell us? The whole passage tells us of his deep affection for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. The whole passage tells us that he loved his disciples and was intentional with them. So could it be? then rather than seeing Jesus as a strict disciplinarian, that the text is showing us a picture of Jesus as a passionate lover. Could it be that this text is showing us one who would cause the hard in order to produce the good because he is one who would move heaven and earth to secure and beautify his bride? I believe that this is a picture of Jesus' deeper love. It's a picture of the groom who fulfilled his calling to the end by purchasing his bride at the cost of his own blood. Friends, the deep love of Jesus 
It's meant to draw us into richer union with him. The deep love of Jesus is meant to draw us into a fuller expression of our relationship with him. To where we walk by faith and not by sight. Brothers and sisters, though we may not understand all of his ways, and we will not understand all of his ways, we can see and trust in his love. And so let us do that. Let us walk boldly in union with him. Not by sight, but by faith. And the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are mighty. Your love is deep. Your love is rich. Your love secures your enemies because you purchased us. So give us eyes to see by faith that you are walking with us every step of the way. Strengthen us in our experience of this rich relationship for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.